0: Everybody seems to prefer an honest crook to a crooked priest. We seem to like the lovable rogues, the people that we know aren't the most moral, but at least they're honest about it. Whereas the people who claim to be right and true and righteous and yet end up putting knives in our back, those people we, we don't have a lot of patience for. You know, the moral philosopher who got me thinking about this in relation to our passage this week is a guy named Vince Gilligan. Now, if you go looking for Vince in any library, you're you're not going to find him because he's actually the creator and writer for Breaking Bad. And he's got this character that is the embodiment of the honest crook, an ex-cop from Philly named Mike who's getting caught up in the seedy underbelly of Albuquerque crime. He's running a protection gig for a guy who's new to making deals, to put it lightly, and he saves him from a lot of embarrassment. And Mike says to this guy, if you're going to be a criminal, you got to do your homework. And the guy says, I'm not a bad guy. And Mike says, I didn't say you were a bad guy, I said you're a criminal. And the guy says, well, what's the difference? And Mike goes on, I've known good criminals and bad cops, bad priests, honorable thieves. You can keep on one side of the law or the other, but if you make a deal with somebody, you keep your word. You can go home today with your money and never do this again, but you took something that wasn't yours and you sold it for a profit. You're now a criminal. Good one, bad one, that's up to you. Now, beyond my bad Philly accent, I, I just love Mike. And when I heard him say this, I smiled real big. I thought it personified his character. And then I immediately chastised myself because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to be concerned about sin for goodness sake. But when we get to our passage today and all that Jesus has been saying up till now and all that he's been doing in the gospel of Luke up till now, at least at the outset, it seems like he shares this preference we all have. It seems like he's got all the grace and patience in the world for the honest sinner. And yet when he's interacting with the people that look like crooked saints, he lambasts them. And one of the groups that he had the, the most trouble with, that he spoke the most harshly to, were the Pharisees. They're presented in almost all the Gospels as if they're Jesus' arch-nemesis. Let me read our passage for today and make some comments on it. This is Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and following. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy full of greed and wickedness, fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you'll be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your garden herbs, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. I don't know if you've ever sat and really thought about it. We breeze by it too quickly, but like what is Jesus' deal with the Pharisees? I don't know if you know about the Pharisees, but they're essentially this group that believed that getting God to return to Israel and save them from Rome would be done by following the Jewish law to the exact letter. Like, these are the people who really, really care about God and His ways, who are concerned with doing everything perfectly, so concerned that they'll, they'll follow it down to the tiniest little detail. And yet Jesus will come at them with something like this, like what is going on there? I think we've got a lot to learn about righteousness and sin and and life in God from the way that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. I think hidden in between the lines of this, this whole section is the fact that, well, righteousness can be more dangerous than sin. Now, that's gonna take some explaining, as will all of Jesus's little sayings. So come along with me on that. So Jesus is at a dinner party. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but eating together is one of the most complicated things people can do together. Almost every culture, almost every class has complex rules about what you do and you don't do when you sit down at the table. I don't know if you've ever been invited out to dinner by somebody who's far outside your tax bracket, right? And you sit down at the placemat and there's more cutlery around you than you've got in your entire house. And then there's like this little white pill looking thing and you think it's a mint and you thought, well, mints are for after dinner, but I guess I'll give it a shot. And as you reach for it, the waiter comes and pours hot water on it and turns out it's a moist towelette. And you realize you're far out of your depth and you're not gonna find any cheeseburgers on that menu. Well, the Pharisees, they are incredibly fastidious when it comes to table manners. They've got rules upon rules upon rules. And, and one of these rules is that they needed to ceremonially clean their dishes, their hands, and sometimes even their food. And again, this is not for hygiene. This is to kind of wash the sinful world off, to keep them from becoming ritualistically unclean. And it is a silly rule. It's, it's a custom that, that is above and beyond the Jewish law. So there's Jesus sitting at table with them, the world's greatest shatterer of silly rules. He leans back and takes his big, grubby, filthy paw and grabs a tortilla jip and dips it in the queso and makes a loud crunch. And I'm willing to wager he even dips twice. And before a piece of lamb can fall out of a Pharisee's mouth onto a plate, he lays into them. You clean the outside of the cup. And yet, inside, you're full of evil and extortion. You fools! Didn't God make the inside and the outside as well? Give generously from within, and everything will be clean to you. Wait, weren't we talking about cups? Is he, Jesus takes this situation, and he, he makes a setup. I think he knows perfectly well what he's doing. He's got something he wants to say to the Pharisees. And he takes the cup and dish in their hands and he makes them images and metaphors for for their lives, for the way they interact, for the fact that they're so concerned with outer righteousness that they neglect the fact that inside they're filthy. Why can righteousness be more dangerous than sin? Because we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus goes on and clarifies this some more. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you're out counting your stalks of cilantro, parsley, and thyme so you can give a tenth to God, and yet you neglect his justice and his mercy. You know, when we become so concerned with outwardly doing the right things, we're always in danger of letting a kind of soul-crushing perfectionism sneak in. Tithing your herbs is ridiculous. There are actually rabbis around this time that give exemptions for tithing herbs. Because I mean, in that type of climate, you might have to go out every second day and be counting your stocks. They're willing to give the tiniest little detail and yet they've missed the, the grand picture. One way, other way of putting it is that the Pharisees, they're giving God all their garnishes, but they don't recognize when he's sitting down at the table right in front of them. Like the irony of this passage is astounding. The whole reason the Pharisees want to be clean, want to do right, is so that they can see God interact on behalf of their nation. And here he is, sitting in front of them, God in the flesh, and they can't recognize him because he uses the wrong fork. It seems like the devil really is in the details. You know, Jesus, I wish I could say it another way because people have really abused this idea throughout history, but, but Jesus, he prioritizes the inner to the outer. He does over and over again. Verse 41 in our passage could be translated Give to God from within generously, and everything will be clean for you. He says elsewhere, The good tree produces good fruit. Out of a good storehouse, good things are brought forth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem with being so focused on the things that are outward being right is that eventually if we do that to the neglect of being transformed inwardly, the right things we're doing become the wrong things. Jesus goes on. Woe to you Pharisees you love the best seats at church, and you like people knowing you're holy in the marketplaces. And here, here's where it really gets real. We can do the right things for the wrong reasons, but the biggest wrong reason, the biggest wrong reason we will focus so much on outward righteousness to the exclusion of the inner, the biggest reason is the approval of other people. Righteousness can be more dangerous than sin because we can feel righteous when people approve of us. We can have a false sense of our rightness because people approve of us. I mean, Paul says it straight up in 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, it's dangerous to speak in the tongues of men and angels. It's dangerous to know all mysteries. It's dangerous to have faith that can move mountains. Because you can do all those things and have no love. Jesus says elsewhere. You know, people will come to him in that day and say, Look, Jesus, I I worked miracles in your name. And he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. We can do the right things for the wrong reasons and We can convince ourselves that we're right because other people approve of us and want to follow us. You know, we're often told to think of the Pharisees as if they're primarily a religious group. Now, this is about Jesus being against organized religion or something like that, but that's a very 20th century way of viewing religion. You know, thinking that it's just some private thing that's off to the side from the rest of the way we live life, as if we can privatize the things that we think about ultimate reality Ancients didn't think that way. You know, society, politics, culture, economics, religion, they were all part of this one thing that was called life. And scholars like N.T. Wright and Chad Mayers will, will say to you that the Pharisees, they're, they're dealing with God and religion, yes, but they're probably much more akin to a political pressure group, which means that with, with every public prayer and tithe, they're, with every time that people can see them worshiping from the best seats in synagogue, what they're actually doing is publicly posting their opinions about the way that their nation should go. They're gathering followers, garnering approval, vying for power. And Jesus warns about the consequence of this with his last woe. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you're like unmarked graves. You've got people tripping over death without them even knowing it. And I am shocked and amazed that somebody doesn't get up and slap him in the face when he says this. Because in a Jewish context, this is scathing. If you step on a grave, if you touch something that's dead in Jewish tradition, you're ritualistically unclean for seven days. And you're not just cleansed by hiding out for those seven days. You need to be purified with water. So if you touch a grave and you don't know it, You're going out and you're spreading your ritual uncleanness to a bunch of other people without them even knowing. And he's saying this to the people who are the most concerned with ritual cleanness in all of history. To put it perhaps a little too strongly in our language, it's as if Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you're dressed up like the doctors, but you're the virus. As Eugene Peterson once said, Jesus is a good cusser. He knows how to say a strong word when he needs to but as a necessary strong word because when we're self-righteous, when we're so concerned with being the right ones, being the good ones, being more right and more good than the people down the street, garnering followers, vying for power, when that's our primary concern, it doesn't just make us mean, it doesn't just make us ornery, it makes us dead. And this isn't just a religious thing. Some of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world have come from people who think they know what's right and true and good and that they can make it happen on their own steam. It's this type of thinking that built the guillotine and the gulag. It's this type of thinking that had just this horrible self-deception that had people writing charters of rights and freedoms and declarations of independence claiming freedom for all and yet murdering indigenous people and claiming that people with different color skin were one-fifths a person. Our capacity for self-deception is incredible when we think we can make everything happen on our own steam, our own goodness, and our own righteousness. And it's a death that doesn't just affect us, it spreads death. Now, at this point, your classic neo-pagan Vancouverite is saying, yes, 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 yes. And that's the problem with organized religion. That's the problem with capitalizing the T in truth. We can't do that, right? It, it, it makes us hate other people and exclude them and hurt them. So we put adjectives in front of truth. Like Kirsten was saying last week, we call it my truth or your truth. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not saying don't try. He's not saying don't believe that you can know what's right and good. In fact, there's just a little phrase that there are whole worlds of meaning in that, that Jesus says here. He says, you should have been able to do this thing without neglecting that thing. You can wash your cups. You can count your herbs. You can sit in the front row at church and still practice the charity and justice and love of God. They are not mutually exclusive, because after all, one person did it. One person did this thing without neglecting that thing. One person was dedicated in his temple, read his Bible, and prayed every day, and didn't become a sociopath. One person had the big red button that could call fire down from heaven on his enemies, and he did not use it. One person didn't kill the people he disagreed with. He died for them. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we do this thing without neglecting that thing? How do we believe that we can, can learn to do what's good? Well, for, for us, it, just, it really comes down to this person sitting at the table across from us. You know, in just a few chapters, Jesus is gonna tell the parable of the prodigal son. We often miss the fact that he's telling this parable to the scribes and Pharisees, the same people he's talking to in this passage. And yes, he talks about a younger son who goes away, who squanders his inheritance and a father who still accepts him back and throws him a feast. But Tim Keller points out that one of the details we often miss is that the father gets up from this feast that he's thrown. He leaves as a host, which is a huge no-no in ancient culture to pursue the grumpy older son who's angry at his grace to pursue in this story the the Pharisee. And what does he say to him? He says, everything I have is yours. The insinuation being not because you work like a dog for me but because you are my son. Why is Jesus so hard on the Pharisees? Because he loves them because he wants to transform their hearts. These are not curses, they're an invitation. An invitation to get back down to what it's really all about. You know, the other thing we learn through scripture is that this invitation works. Who's one of the men that that gets Jesus, his body from Pilate? The man named Nicodemus gospel of John we learn a man named Nicodemus who is a Pharisee retrieves Jesus's body who's the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity Saul of Tarsus who we know by his Greek name Paul a Pharisee like the father in this story Jesus is going after the Pharisees because they do have potential And that preference we seem to notice at the beginning of our passage in our talk between the honest sinner and the crooked saint, it's artificial. Jesus sits at the table of sinners and the Pharisees hate him for it. But I wonder how the sinners felt when Jesus goes to the table of the Pharisees, the the ones who are criticizing them and lambasting them. You know, he sits at the table of the honest sinner. He sits at the table of the crooked saint. He gives grace to the honest sinner. He gives grace to the crooked saint. And that gap that we feel when we look at them, the gap between the honest sinner and the crooked saint, well, it's about the length of a Roman cross. And that's a gap that was filled long ago. So if you feel like a Pharisee, If anything in my interpretation of what Jesus has said has has got you thinking, see him there across from the table, invite him in. Don't be surprised if he does a few things that shock you, but know that he's got grace for you just like he does anybody else. And the invitation to all of us is to accept that grace because it turns out that we need him in our righteousness just as much as we need him in our sin. Let me pray for us. Good Father, help us to be a people who live out of our transformed hearts. Help us to be a people who do not seek the approval of others but seek your approval. Help us to live out of your charity and your justice and your love. Empower us with the Holy Spirit to be a type of people who can do one thing without neglecting the other. And help us to be righteous in the way that you promised righteousness to us, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, accepted as your children. And We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.